trivia, discussions, opinions, and the chance to have your say. Welcome to the Topical Resort.
and that music brings about another week here on the resort because it's Friday night and we're surprisingly on the air on a Friday night. Who would believe it? This is the Top Resort right here on Radio Sega. You heard a track there from the fan game released in 2013 known as Sonic After the Sequel. That was Cyan City, the 16-bit version, obviously stylized to sound like it's on the YM2612. And it's it's a good one. What what more can I really say? Well, I got an idea of what I can say because that one's a little bit nostalgic for me, and you know what you're thinking, obviously, already is how are you nostalgic for something that came out in 2013? And yeah, you're mostly right. But that was my theme on my live stream for a good number of years. It must have been from or at least 2014 to 2016. If not, it bled into 2017 a little bit. That was my theme for ages. Every single stream you'd hear that, and <laughs> so it's really. It's really weird when I go back and hear it, like, come on shuffle every now and then, or I'll play it on a show, and it's, wow, I've not, I've not heard this in a while. <laughs> this, this thing that I'd hear almost every day at one point in my life that I haven't heard for, like, a good number of months. It's very odd, but, um, great track either way, that's a remix of Science City, which, uh, the original track is known as Tea with Ellie, and it's a much more chillax track than that, it's very down-to-earth, sort of. Calm, whereas that is very adrenaline pumping and chippy and bitty and all that type of thing. And then we have to start things off with a track from the brand new game, the uh, the thing that the spotlight's on here after all. That was from Spark Electric Jester 2, released yesterday on Steam, and that was the vocal version of the boss fight theme. So how it works in game is, um, it's the easiest way I can describe it is like a Metal Gear Rising type system where the better you're doing at the boss, the you're going to hear the lyrics and the louder the music's going to be, that type of thing. So, that's exactly what happens there. Once you get a certain way into the boss, it kicks in the vocals, but thanks to the power of, um, what am I trying to say? Thanks to the power of digging through the game's files, you can hear the full thing, the full vocal version, before the game's officially released, uh, before the game's soundtrack is officially released. Because we don't quite know what's happening with that yet. I do sort of address that in the review, but... I don't entirely know. So in the meantime, we're just going to have to put up with that, the vocal version of the boss fight theme ripped from the game's files itself. And hello to everyone who's currently listening in. Hello to everyone on Discord. I've currently got a good number of you down there. Not many, but I think there's quite a few of you lurking from what I've gathered. And oh well, we've got a we've got a good number of people. So if you want to join, radio.se.jo.discord. If you know, if you have Discord, you know what to do. If you don't, just enter a username on your web client once you type in radio.s.g/discord, and then you can join the chat room full of lovely people such as Veritech, Superbike, Rick Gamer 98, Jamie 64326, and a whole bunch of other lurkers like Ace Croft, who might still be here. I don't really know. And um, people like Callum and II, they could still be here. They regularly listen in. If you are listening, hello to you. If you're on the podcast, if you're lurking, whatever, hello to you all. And, yeah, I don't have an awful lot really here to mention on this first block. In fact, I don't have an awful lot to mention in general, because tonight it was sort of getting to the point where I might not have been able to do this show again. Um, It was sort of looking like I'd have to move it again, and I will have more news relating to the show in the coming weeks, but I am eyeing up a new permanent slot, and I say this, we are... I don't know if I've covered this before on the show, but we are rapidly approaching the end of the season, so maybe a little bit in vain, yes, but um, I just want to make sure that I can host this show at a set point every single week, because Friday is becoming a bit challenging, 
between commitments and priorities and stuff that I'd like to do on my own time that can only be done on Fridays and it's just a lot of things that are stacking up against this show being able to happen every week consistently or on the same slot that sadly that's sort of how life goes. I've been very lucky to have two two and a bit uninterrupted years for the most part on a Friday night. I've been able to just do this and not had to worry about you know, um, whether I'm going to be able to make it this week or how consistent I'm going to be because I've never had to worry about that, but hey, that's how life happens. So I'm going to have to eye up a new day, which I am always free on. So be keeping an eye out. I will be making a blog post when I've decided because I'm sort of between a couple of different theories right now, but we don't have too many episodes left of this season because um, we're hovering around like the episode 44, 45 mark, I think, at this current moment. Those of you listening on the podcast, you can obviously see what episode number I'm on, but I'm doing that off the top of my head, so I don't have any sort of memory as to what episode I'm on, so I guess... Um, I don't really know. But, yeah, I'm, I normally cap out a season of the show around 50 episodes, but I'm not decided on that yet. we still got quite a few more left to go, but not entirely decided, but I, I'm sort of eyeing up a nice summer break, and then bringing back the show permanently around the time that um, I head back into education, because that's that's fun, and everyone, everyone I've heard actually really does want a midweek show, and if I were to do a midweek show, I'm not entirely against the idea, but I just feel like a midweek show would require a lot of retooling. I'd want to re... This show currently in the, the format it is, it's... It's very much less like this than season one. But, um, this show is very much, yay, it's Friday night, woo, I guess, in a sense. But not as much now that we have stuff like the trivia segment, and we don't have the Discord call-in anymore. I guess it's, it could work a bit more as a midweek show, but I'd still want to tweak it a little bit more before I was happy with that as such. But... Yeah, I can't deny a midweek show would be nice. It'd perhaps be a bit difficult some weeks, but I'm certainly uh, not against the idea. I think I'd rather do that than have another show on Saturday nights on Radio Sega, because that would make three, and we have Rapid Run streaming on Saturdays, so it would just be way too much of an overload on one night, but then you have the argument of, well, what's going to go on Friday night? So I have some ideas, and I'll be contacting some people, but... Yeah, this show might not be on Fridays for all too much longer. I want to keep it at least this way, hopefully until the end of the season, but we'll just have to see how circumstances go, how they stay, etc. But, um, we should probably talk about what we're actually here to talk about. So, Spark the Electric Jester 2. By full thoughts, I'm going to be giving in the review, which will be coming up normally where we would have uh, Tessie Topicality or uh, where the Discord call-in would be. We're going to have the review there because it's quite long. Those of you who haven't checked it out on YouTube yet, it is 17 minutes and 30 seconds. So strap yourselves in, grab a beverage of some sort, grab something to eat because you're going to be there for quite a while on that one. But um, the game I can give my rough opinion on, it, it is good. It, it has some rough edges, but it is good. And I sort of, as I always do, want to know your opinion if you played it, which... It's not It's not a Sega title, so I automatically don't expect to have very many people saying they've played it, because at least this is Radio Sega if I say, have you played Sonic? Yeah, we've all played it, I can give you my opinion. Here it's, I don't expect you to have one, but if you have one, that's certainly nice. 
Are you interested in picking the game up? Let me know if my review even swayed you to pick it up or it dissuade you from picking it up because that is also entirely possible, I guess. So just tell me all of that stuff. I always love hearing that here on the show. And for those of you who are sort of unsure, because I, my general topic idea that I gave up on Discord and on Twitter was just, hey, we're doing a show about Lake Fefford, and, and automatically people are just going to sort of go, who? A lot of people I think will already know, because I've, I've spoken about him quite a bit on the show, and we've had him on Radio Sega on shows such as the Sega Lounge before, and... Well, some of the soundtracks, such as some for the sequel in particular, absolute classics on the station, even if we don't have them available to request. But uh, the sort of long and short of it is he was a fan game developer who developed Sonic fan games, who later turned an indie developer who now makes original titles, heavily influenced by Sonic and various other Sega properties, such as... I guess it's not a Sega property, but more of a treasure property, such as Gunstar Heroes, Dynamite Heady, but also other non-Sega properties spark his influence by, such as Mega Man X... Kirby, especially Kirby Superstar. A lot of those games all go into the pool of influences, so if you like any of those 90s 2D, admittedly gorgeous looking platformers, you'll love the first part of the Electric Jester, and if you've ever sort of pondered to yourself, what would a good Mega Man X7 feel like, or what would a Sonic Adventure with more combat focus and better camera, etc., what would that feel like, then Spark 2 is probably more your bet, but... I, I think Spark 1 is definitely still the more solid game, I just think he is much more comfortable with developing 2D games and that shows in the first game, but still not devaluing the second one in any way, but I think your mileage will vary very much on which one you prefer, depending on your favourite genres, etc. You sent me 28 messages in like the two minutes that I haven't looked at the chat room, so I should probably... Uh, go back. Oh, we've got TCB as well. So hello, TCB. It's been a while since we've had uh, since we've had him down in the chat room on a sh- on a show in general, I think. But especially on the resort, it's been it's been a hot minute. So BrickGame98 says definitely gonna have to pick it up, but uh, after payday, I love Spark One, but couldn't complete it because my p- old PC buckled under the weight of the final stage. I also love the BTS and ATS series and spin-offs. Jamie has brought up the very good point which everyone brings up every single time I mention this game, which is, why is it not on Switch? Why is it not on Switch? It'd be perfect for Switch. Switch, 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 Switch. Uh, um, this this question was explained in regards to the first game, but I think in regards to the second game, uh, it hasn't been answered. Or at least very clearly, but I can sort of explain it. So the first Spark game, he didn't... Switch was the platform everyone was asking him to bring it to, so that was the one he was more likely to do than PS4 or Xbox One. But in regards to that, um, he didn't decide from what I remember, I could be completely wrong, but I think he didn't want to bring over Spark 1 to consoles because it would require him to give up the rights to the game to um, just some sort of publishing studio, like indie publishing. For some platforms they require you to do that, whereas um, I think Nintendo actually you can self-publish, but it's not very easy and you have to go through a bunch more hoops if you want to do it that way. But he didn't want to give up the rights to his very first game to a studio and lose all rights to his characters, lose all rights to the gameplay, the music, everything. He wanted to have full creative control over it so he could do whatever he wanted in regards to sequels, etc. So, I guess, um, in that sense, that was why he didn't do Spark 1, whereas he said he'd like looked into it and found something for Spark 2, as far as I know, but... What happened there was it's just a logistical issue. 
Switch developer kits are very affordable in comparison. Switch dev kits are like $500, but you have to still jump for a bunch of poops to get one. You have to be certified and checked and all this and that and the other. Whereas PS4 and Xbox One, good flipping luck, dev kits for those cost thousands of pounds. So Switch, or thousands of dollars, sorry. So Switch is more so looking like the possibility here for this game, but he just said it's still just a bit out of the financial goal. Perhaps, maybe we'll see something if it, the game performs well on Steam, but not crossing my fingers, but thousands of dollars for a dev kit is a lot of money versus the 500 for Switch, so I think we're most likely to be seeing it on that console if we're going to see it on consoles at all, personally. Jamie says, can't he self-publish? Yeah, he can. He can self-publish, but I've said it requires a lot more checks in order to be self-published on Switch, but it is certainly possible, but... Mm. The first game as well, I think only came out like a month after Switch came out, so that was even more strict. This was back before... This was back before those um, sort of crappy shovelware games flooded the eShop. This was back when the eShop was still very tight knit on the Switch. Before the, uh, the, the metaphorical floodgates were opened, so that might have paid a factor in it. So maybe if you try it again now, it might be different, but I, this is armchair developing. I don't know how that works, but that's the reasoning I remember hearing at the time, and even when we were um, just talking to him on the Sega Lounge, I seem to remember he sort of roughly said the same thing of it's just too much aggro for not really a lot of payoff. But everyone keeps asking for it and it's a good question to have because I agree, I think these games would be very well suited to um, a... to a... especially a handheld version. I think with the length of these games, they would work brilliant as a handheld game because Spoilers, I guess. Tune out for like 10 seconds. Uh, Spark 2 isn't very long at all. I clocked my play for 3 hours and a lot of people on Steam. So they clocked theirs at just over an hour. So, mileage is going to vary, but um, yeah, honestly, those games would be a lot better fitted for a handheld where you can just pick them up and play versus marathoning them, which I don't think these games are very well suited for just due to the length alone. Um, have we got anything else interesting in the chat before I move on and head on to the trivia coast? Um, TCB says, Oh, Spark 2, it looks fine, but it looks empty and soulless in other areas. Yep, that's one I see a lot, and that is one I, I address a bit in the review. So, keep your ears up for that if you're going to be sticking around, because later on in the show I keep mentioning it, but that is one of the main draws to tonight's show. The audio review, I think, probably came out a lot, not a lot, but I think it came out better than the video review, so keep your ears peeled, and keep your ears peeled for the first question here on the Trivia Coast. Trivia Coast. And welcome to the Trivia Coast, our weekly game show segment where you must earn points for no reason other than me being a bit sadistic and wanting you to earn some points. So, how it works, I'm going to ask you three questions. A hard question, a medium question, and an easy question. Hard is worth five points, medium worth three, and easy worth one. So, you're going to want to be in Discord to play this. Once again, radiose.ga forward slash Discord, and you're going to need to private message me. I will not accept answers in the main chat room, so... 
My tag on Discord is greenvaporate, hashtag 6383. That's where you can send me a message right there. Um, once I've asked you a question, you can, or once I've asked you, say, a second question or a third question, you can continue to answer all other questions. So if I ask you the medium question, you can still answer the hard question. And a lot of people view it as cheating, but I do allow Google some of these questions. Sometimes on these shows, you're not going to get about Google. I've worded, I've worded them a bit fiendishly in order to make you use Google. So I really don't mind it at all, but you can brag to me if you in, didn't even end up using Google. That's a selling point for you. And it's all just a bit of fun. We're not playing for any particular reason. So with, uh, with that in mind, I should say don't don't fret too much that Electric Boogaloo has so many points. He has like 100 points. It's quite ridiculous. Whereas uh, Jamie in second place has like 70 or something. I don't have my list open right now, but we're just playing for fun, playing to flex that trivia bit of our brain our SAG education, our general knowledge, all that sort of stuff. But this first question, if you've not played the game, you're not gonna know this one about Google, so let it be your friend. Don't don't poke it with a stick. Just tame it, tame it nicely and go on your Google way. And uh, Jamie, I should just say, ju just Google it. Just Google it, Jamie. And uh, we also have uh, Tatey1 down in the Discord. Hello to you, Tatey1. I hope you're doing well, a new face, always nice to see. And yes, hard question with that in mind, you're playing for five points, you need to private message me, blah blah blah. Later appearing in a popular PS4 and Switch platformer, which character is a hidden easter egg in Sonic after the sequel? So later appearing in a popular PS4 and Switch platformer, which character is a hidden easter egg in Sonic after the sequel? Let me know your answer, and while we do that, we're going to get on some music. So, let's start with a bit of a Radio Sega classic, and it's one we played a few times before, but everyone loves it every single time it comes on, and nice and appropriate today, because here in the UK, the weather has been dreadful, downpour all over the place, grey, greyish black outside, not very nice, but whenever I think of that, I always think of this, I always think of this level, and I always think of this song. And for good reason, I think it's a good song to think of during this time. From Sonic Before the Sequel 2012, this is Rivulet for Horizon Heights Act 1.
Friday night. This is Topical Resort, only on Radio Sega.
Up next, Request Resort. Send your request relating to the topic of the episode in a tweet to at Radio Sega or the Green Viper 8. Or send it in a Discord DM to Green Viper 8 through our Discord server at radiose.ga forward slash Discord. Oh, right. I, I totally forgot that I didn't write a hasty history. But even if I did, what is there really to talk about the history of? I don't think there really is anything. I think, um... There's not not really all that much is known about the development of these games whatsoever. I could say, this game is is supposed to be a prequel to Sonic 2. This game is supposed to be a sequel to Sonic 2. Oh, that, yeah, but that's really about all I can say. So maybe it's for the best that I didn't end up starting writing a hasty history. But I just completely forgot. It slipped my mind. But in the chat room currently, we're having, um, we're having an argument about Fortnite, which, fair enough, but... Uh, also in the chat room, Twitty has said something which I'd completely forgot. Um, I knew it as a fact, but I don't actually remember the time period when it was. But Twitty says he remembers when Sonic before the sequel and after the sequel were requestable soundtracks. Which, I, I remember people were saying this in the past, that yeah, you could request the Sonic before and after the sequel soundtracks on Radio Sega, but for some reason we got rid of them, and Twitty can probably tell me, but I don't really remember why and why we removed them, etc. But... I'd be willing to put them on the third party bit, not gonna lie, because um, those of you who don't tune into the 24-7 regularly or don't really know how it works, nowadays we have non-requestable tracks which are just general remixes, so we allow remix albums onto the 24-7, but we don't allow individual remixes like just individual OC remixes, because that just, we, that's always been the rules, but nowadays we have a non-requestable remix pool which is full of hundreds of remixes that you can't request, but we add to them sort of every week, once in a while. Or, yeah, just once in a while, some new tracks, and we have a good time. This is the extent of it, but we also have a third-party section where you... where anything that was on a Sega console, not published by Sega, or anything that just generally relates to Sega, we uh, put into the third party segment. We're going to ignore Streets of Rage Remake because that shouldn't be in there. But it is still on there for some reason and I don't want to remove it because it's just such a staple of the, of the station that I really don't want to get rid of it. But hey, Streets of Rage Remake's still there but Sonic Before and After the Sequel aren't, which is sad times but I'm going to... I will probably ask at some point if I can put them on the third party. Not, not ask the staff members because I don't need to ask them anything. I, Please will you let me, uh, considering I'm the only one who has the power to do so, please will you let me add them to the playlist. I, no, I'll, I'll ask the actual composers whether they're okay with us doing that again, because I assume we probably asked them in the first place, but hey, might as well anyway, because a bit of common courtesy goes a long way, in my opinion. But on top of that as well, um, Brute Gamer asks what's the hard question, I'll repeat that for you just because um, no one else in the chat repeated it. So. Hang on, wait. Brit asked the hard question again. Brit, you you answered the hard question and you don't remember what it was. Impeccable, Mr. Brittany. Um. So later appearing in a popular PS4 and Switch platformer, which character is a hidden Easter egg in Sonic after the sequel? Later appearing in a popular PS4. Or later appearing in a popular PS4 and Switch platformer, which character is a hidden Easter egg in Sonic after the sequel? Do not put your answer in the main chat. 
please send it to me privately in a private message. Use Google, all that stuff, and we're good. Um, interestingly, Casey says he kept Streets of Rage remake on there because he was treating it as a fan remix album, which makes sense except for the tracks which are either A, original, or B, just don't really have anything to do with anything, or they're a remix of, like, the, the classic track which everyone knows from there isn't even a Sega track. It's, um, Island of Everlasting Summer, which is a remix of Super Adventure Island. <laughs> it's not even a Sega track. But... Whatever, I don't really care, but I, 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 the slight perfectionist in me does care a bit, but not all that much. I, I'll live, you know, but not for all that long. Anyway, um, what else? People keep saying stuff that throws me way off the scent of what I was actually going to talk about. TCB says, interestingly, fun fact, Sonic after the sequel became my favourite classic Sonic game, so when Mania came out, I couldn't get into it nearly as much for whatever reason. Now, I can't go as far as saying not getting into Mania, but um, Sonic after the sequel for the longest time was my favourite classic Sonic game, and nowadays, I nowadays I've sort of changed my rules and don't really count it as that, because it's a little bit cheeky to say that's my favourite classic game, but... Hey, but it, it's an incredible game. I'd still honestly put it in my top games list. But not in my favourite classic games list, no. Because it's technically not. But Mania, I think, would be number one, then CD, then three and knuckles. But what can you do? I know what you can do. You can change your rules to let after the sequel in. Because after the sequel is an absolutely banging game. Brilliant classic Sonic title. When you analyse it a bit deeper, it does have a few design quirks and some design issues. Not nearly as much as the Metroidvania games like Chrono Adventure, but after the sequel does have a few little touchy bits in regards to its overall design, but nowhere near as bad as before the sequel, and um, nowhere near as stop-starty as uh, Chrono Adventure, but hey, still a good game. Just a few issues that I'd love to see ironed out, which we can bring up the point of... We can bring up the point that... Sorry, Brits just messaged me. Um, you can bring up the point that there was after the sequel DX, and after the sequel DX, I don't really like that version at all. Um, shout out to my boy Burns. I've given him a shout out on a few episodes on the Aladdin, uh, on the episode where we featured Aladdin quite prominently. What was that? Licensed episode. That was it. Because he uh, speedruns Aladdin. He also speedruns and used to have the world record for Sonic after the sequel. And he will go on for days about how much he hates that version. Because the drop dash doesn't work as it did in Mania. It doesn't work very well. It introduces a whole bunch of new glitches. Sonic moves slower in that version than he does in the original. And overall it just introduces a bunch of new bugs that weren't there. Like in the original version of after the sequel DX that was released. The credits were broken. You died in the credits upon spawning in the credits. You could not beat the game. He had to issue a patch for that one very quickly and rather apologetically. I like the new final boss. It's cool, but it's too hard. The new final boss is way too hard. I got I streamed my original playthrough of DX and I got stuck for about an hour. Yeah, no fun. There is... Um, I can't remember his name now. I'm really sorry. But there was a guy who went on a project to fix after the sequel DX. He's a Russian guy, which is why I can't remember his name, but um, it's called like After the Sequel Deluxe, and it's in finally in widescreen, 
So you can play the game in widescreen. It has brand new bosses, including a new boss for Sugar Splash, which didn't have one in the original version. Generally has a lot of quality of life updates, and it fixes the drop dash issue and a bunch of other glitches. In an email, because I sort of had an email conversation with him, he directly said that the reason he did this is because Lake is very bad at patching escapes, which I didn't want to say, but um, I, I don't want to agree with that you're sort of getting why I brought that up in the first place. Perhaps there's a deeper meaning to why I brought that up, but in general, yeah, that's a brilliant version. I haven't had a chance to play, but I've seen enough footage of it, but I'd, I'd probably say if I had to ask Burns, he'd probably say the original version is still better, but that's a whole leap and bound above what uh, Lake did for the DX version, because I don't want to throw too much shade, but it's sort of theorised that the after the sequel DX port was a way to get back at the Mania team who'd sort of stolen his thunder a bit, but that's just a bit of a fan theory and he'd probably uh, discourage, not discourage, he'd probably uh, disown that very quickly, but hey, I hear that one around quite a lot, so it's worth mentioning. Just how perhaps absurd, absurd it is, or generally bizarre, but there is some sense in it, I guess. He was sort of the poster boy of how to make a good classic Sonic game, and suddenly, all of a sudden, you got this team who makes a better classic game than him, according to the critics, so makes sense in some ways, I guess. TCB says, it also burnt me out on classic Sonic fan games and hacks around that time, plus I never grew up a classic fan, so yeah, Mania a good game, that's about it for me. See, you, you take your opinion much less, uh, how would I say it? Your opinion is much less sharp around the edges than your brother's opinion, which is, Mania is the worst thing ever in existence. So I appreciate that, but I do get why people dislike the game, just, I'm of the opinion, Mania's still really good, and after the sequel is still really good. One does not devalue the other for me at all, except perhaps Lake trying to, trying to imitate Mania a bit in the coming months. It soured that a bit for me, but oh well. Um, uh, there's a lot of talk of Sonic Project Hero, which I haven't seen too much of, but there's been so much hype around that, but that perhaps I should check that out, because so many different outlets have covered Project Hero, and I don't really know what it's about, so someone please link me perhaps a trailer and I'll watch it during uh, the request break, but oh, I'll do that in a bit. We, we've also been talking about what we're playing in the chat, and we've had some mentions of Fortnite and Apex Legends, but now is about the time where I say what I've been playing this week, and I always want to know what you've been playing, but I don't want to really turn into Scott, and I don't want to ask you every week, because that's a staple of Scott's show, not mine, but... I do like to know sometimes what you've been up to, and that's th this week it's mainly a vehicle to tell you I've been playing a vehicle. Ha, ha. But um, in this case, you know I've been playing Spark 2, but what wh what happened to arrive in the mail today? A certain Mr. Team Sonic Racing. Now, I don't want to go on about this too much, because I don't want it to turn into a humble brag, blah blah blah, because I know some people didn't get those today, which... Uh, Hats off to our soldiers who uh, didn't manage to get them. Uh, I was going to say sucks to be you, but I didn't mean it like that at all. I meant, um, you know, sorry that you couldn't get your coffee, I guess. I didn't mean to mean it, word it in a harsh way at all. It just sort of came out that way. But the game is very good. My shorthand opinion on it, because I want to say my longhand opinion for next week. My shorthand opinion is, you, if, you're, if you're a huge fanboy of... All-Stars Racing and All-Stars Racing Transformed, you're not going to get on with this. So if you're... I was a bit of an All-Stars Racing purist as in the first game. I really love that game. So when I... 
I thought I would. Ha I, I'm surprisingly opinion of I love it, but if you're an all-stars racing purist, I don't think you would like it. I think there's too many things that are different, too similar to Transforms to be able to like it. Whereas if you're a purist of ASRT, which a lot more people are, all-stars racing Transforms, I think uh, you'll complain that it is too similar to the original game, which you don't like as much. So. I think there's a lot of overlap of it's too similar to the one that I don't like as much, but it, I, I love it. You've got to go into it with very much a different opinion. You need to go into it with the opinion of um, it's a whole fresh experience, and as a result of people not doing that, I've seen a lot of 5 out of 10 reviews which go, it's not a proper racing game because you don't get a good sense of speed, which I, I hate saying this, I really hate saying this, but you're playing it wrong. You're not focusing on the team aspect if you're playing it that way. This game's thing is the team aspect and you're just ignoring it. You've got to focus on doling out those items to your partners. You've got to focus on slingshotting them, which by the way, you can slingshot people in the game, which oh, Daytona fan in me, that, that got me. But you can slingshot people, you can slip draft them. You're very much going to need to play tactically, which is something that you didn't have to do in the original two games. It's a tactical game. You need to be aware of your teammates all times. And um, you need to be aware of your teammates and you just need to have a general awareness of don't try and steal the glory for yourself because that's not what it's all about. If you're using all your own items and not dishing them out to other players, you're not going to receive items back and therefore you're not going to build up your team meter. And you're not going to be able to slipstream players, therefore you're not going to be able to gain your own speed. If you're playing it as a lone, if you're playing it as a lone, uh, lone ranger, you're going to have a horrible time. Do not go into it with the urge to win and go fast. Go into it with the urge to play tactically and play as a team. That way, the game truly accelerates. I've only played about three or so hours, but even I could tell that, and a lot of the reviewers couldn't. They were like, "Eh, I'm just constantly sailing in first place. There's no sense of." It was, I constantly can't win, actually, was more of it. I can't win, and there's no sense of speed, and this, that, and the other. You're, you're just not doing it right, and that's... I, I hate saying that, because I had to say that about Shenmue as well, and that's really one of my least favourite phrases, but in some cases, no, there is no right way to play a game. It's how you play it, but you don't play this in the same way you play the first two other games, and I think that will turn a lot of people off. If I had to give you a... I never normally give a score. If I had to give you a score, 7 out of 10. Easy. I'd, I'd probably say, um, on a technical level, it's by far the best of the racing games, and that's not just a visual sound, visual sound type thing. That's just an overall everything package. It's probably the best one, but preferences and human bias do exist, so... Go into it with a pinch of salt, but I imagine since this is a Sega chat room, a lot of you are getting it anyway. Except the Crash Team Racing Faithful, because I have my issues with Crash Team Racing, mainly the microtransactions and the skin system, which we seem to be ignoring. I had a little bit of a rant about this on Discord earlier on a channel which I'm not really sharing with any of you. That's not a, I'm not going to say what it is, I mean as in, um, I, I'm not in that channel with the rest of you. It's, it's sort of what I meant, I made it sound very secretive and very um, naughty, which it really wasn't at all. I had this little rant that... Everyone's so faithful in Crash Team Racing when there's really nothing to be faithful in, and I'm not saying that in a bad way, but I mean as in, we don't really know anything more about that game than we know about Team Sonic Racing at this current moment, yet people are decrying Team Sonic Racing as the worst thing ever, despite barely seeing any footage, and 
wouldn't you know it, Crash Team Racing's the best thing ever, even though we've got microtransactions and skins and all this Activision stuff. And the point I brought up was, generally, critically, both the Sonic Racing games before this one were positively received. That's a pretty good track record. Of Sonic, it, Sonic is a bit um, of a touchy one as a whole, but the Sonic Racing games very positively received. They have a good track record going into it, so you can have a bit more faith. Just because Forces wasn't very good, blah blah blah, doesn't mean there's any less reason to have faith in this one. Crash Racing games, on the other hand, to date there's only been one good Crash Racing game. Crash, crash Racing game. The other ones have been pretty bad. <laughs> really bad, actually. But because Activision made a good remaster of, of the original trilogy, suddenly we're blindly faithful in the series again. And may I remind you that not only were the Crash Racing games aside from CTR pretty bad, so were a lot of Crash games in general. We suddenly had one good game and the Crash Bandicoot faithful are back. It's suddenly the best series ever all over again when... Come on, you can't have skepticism for one and not have it for the other. You, I, I can't help but feel it's just blind bashing because meh, Forces wasn't very good. Yeah, but this is a completely different dev team. A dev team who have a very good track record. Whereas Crash is being made by Activision and didn't have a very good track record with its previous dev team before um, or after Naughty Dog. So I always sort of felt that way. It's... We're so faithful that Crash Team Racing is going to be the best thing ever when we've barely seen any of it, and the stuff we have seen has been very sort of uh, bit bit worrying almost. Because the the response I keep seeing is microtransactions aren't necessary; you don't have to pay for them. If they're there in the first place, though, that opens the metaphorical floodgates. Because if they already have microtransactions for cosmetics, what's stopping them then from patching in microtransactions for characters? What's stopping them from doing on-disc DLC? If you're not seeing my point here, then um, I made it quite blatantly obvious. Even if they're not mandatory microtransactions, it's Activision. There is nothing stopping them from, after release, putting more in or putting worse things in. That's why I'm scared of Crash Team Racing, but no one else seems to be. Which really confuses me, because it's the best series ever. We can't we can't fault it because they made one good game and now we're faithful in it again. It's my hot take. Because you tune into the topical result of my hot takes, except the Sonic movie. We're not talking about the damn Sonic movie. Because you've heard enough about that on every other show and every other YouTube channel under the sun. But that no one seems to be talking about that theory at all. But I want to know what you're saying in the chat, because I'm judging by the amount of messages I've got. This is horrendously a bad take. Um, let's see what... Um, Let's see what you guys have been saying in the chat room. Jamie is posting a picture of PS Plus for some reason. Right, okay. Thank, thanks, Jamie. Uh, Brit says in regards to my uh, Team Sonic Racing rant about how people weren't playing it right. People, you, people are used to kart racers handing out easy wins. That wasn't necessarily the case with Transformed, but I think the first game, as much as I love it, very much gave you easy wins. It wasn't difficult to win in that game at all. Transformed a bit more so if you're playing on the higher difficulties, but... 
it was very manageable. Here it feels much less manageable, but that's because the game plays completely differently to the previous game. So it's going to not be manageable for a while, but then it'll be completely manageable once you get used to it, which people just aren't giving the time of day. I sort of get the feeling a lot of the people who gave it negative reviews picked it up for two hours and went, nah, not for me, not for me, I'm going to go back to play Mario Kart 8 Deluxe, a game which... I take issues with, which is a very unpopular opinion, so I'm not going to drag on it for too long, but Mario Kart 8 Deluxe is a fun party game. It's not a mechanically sound kart racer by any means, especially Deluxe. Mario Kart 8 mechanically was much more solid than Mario Kart 8 Deluxe was. They it took a game which was already... it was okay. It was... in terms of racing game mechanics, Mario Kart 8 was mediocre. They took that and slapped a bunch of stuff in it which just makes it completely nonsensical. The item roulette is non-existent. It is complete junk in Mario Kart 8 Deluxe. As uh, just any other things. Winning feels random in that game. But these are the people who will say that this is... A lot of the reviews actually I saw said that Mario Kart 8 Deluxe is simply the best kart racing game ever which it's a good party game. It's mechanically sound, it's not a good mechanically sound racer at all. <laughs> there's a system which I want to talk about in Mario Kart 8 Deluxe actually, which is interesting because there's, on in the online mode, there's a little bit of trickery. So it will add in stuff like item hits that you won't see on the other player's screen. So you can actually snipe a player with a green shell and on their screen they won't be sniped with it. And they do it because it makes the game look more flashy. I'm dead serious, there's been, like, evidence to support this, that it's not, like, netcode issues. This is genuinely a feature where you can hit people and they won't get hit on their screen because it looks flashier in terms of footage and creates a better impression. That's really sketchy for me. But this is, like, not the Mario show, this is a Sega show, but Sega are just the Sonic company, they just make Sonic games, so we should probably move on. And, um, well, let's be fair, we've completely derailed it. We've, to we've spoken for 20 minutes about something completely unrelated, but I always love doing that on this show. We've got plenty more time to talk about related things, so we'll do that in just a second. But while we do that, or before we do that, why don't we get into some requests, and before that, why don't we get on over to the Trivia Coast. Trivia Coast. It's it's eight o'clock and we haven't even started on requests. Yeah, that sounds like a typical topical resort episode post Sega Mixer Drive. Now that Sega Mixer Drive isn't on a Friday night anymore, um, I have the ability to overrun and this regularly happens. I don't even mean to. I just get so caught up in conversation, but I, I love it. I love having a chat with you guys. That's what this show was always intended for, and in the initial sort of season run of it, we didn't have too many people in the chat, but nowadays we get quite a lot of people in the chat, so we can have just a good old natter about anything we want, which I really enjoy, actually, that aspect of the show. But we are back here at the Trivia Coast, and I'm going to ask you now the medium question, so you could be winning three points if you answer the medium question correctly. And, well, in this case, it's a simple one, I think, but is it? Is it really? In what year was Lake's first widely known fan game, Sonic 4 the Sequel, released? So what year was Sonic 4 the Sequel What In what year was Sonic 4 the Sequel released? Let me know on Discord, private message me for the chance to win three points, and be sure to get in your requests as well. If you're listening to the show, you get a free request, except you get multiple requests. Just 
hit me up on the DMs, Green Vibrate, hashtag 6383, or on Twitter, at Redisaker, at Topper Resort, or at the Green Vibrate, or using the hashtag Topper Resort. And one more option, you have email, which is viper at radiosega.net. All those places you can get in your request, and I'm going to kick things off with my request, because I'm a little bit greedy, but didn't have anywhere else to put it in the show. From Sonic After the Sequel, it's Pomp and Circumstance. When we come back, well, it's time we nattered this time about the games that are actually relevant. See you in a bit. Request Resorts.
so good from Sparkly Electric Jester, that's the ultimate final boss theme, and I went on a huge rant on Discord about how that might be my favourite sort of end, not ending the sort of end game sequence to any game ever, it's so awesome. It just adrenaline pumping the entire way through, and then when you hear that theme as you deliver the final blow in pretty epic cutscene, so satisfying. Lakes games are always brilliant at adrenaline pumping finales, we were talking about that before with Sonic after the sequel, but that's just the king for me, the absolute king, Sparkly Electric Jester 1. Even more so than the second game. So good. Every single time I play it, like, it doesn't help, or it, in fact it really helps actually, that the mid-game really drags, so when you actually get to the end game, the final level, and you have all this happen in the space of like 20 minutes, it's so awesome. It just really pumps you up to finish the game, and the final boss, or the ultimate final boss, because Spoilers, there's two final bosses, as with most late games. Uh, uh, the fact that there's two final bosses, the first one has a pretty good theme, and then the second one has that one, when you think you finish the game, then the game tricks you, sort of fakes you out. So good. Love it. For that, uh, that was my request, by the way, because I just wanted to hear it again. That's a classic on the show. We played that on here, I think we might have played it on Sega Ages once, and I think we played it, um... Yeah, we played it the week it came out, and um, everyone was commenting on how awesome it was then, and it was still awesome even all these years later, and huge spoiler, massive spoiler, um, Brit, tune out right now, take out your earphones for like 30 seconds, anyone else who doesn't want Spark 2 spoilers, take your earphones out right now, or turn your speakers off. Right, that's, that's ample enough warning. Spark the Electric Jester 2 doesn't have a unique final boss theme. That theme is reused for the final boss, I learned, which I haven't reached the final boss, but uh, people were telling me that because I played the game on a build which didn't have final boss music because I assumed it was still in work. However, nope, it was just he couldn't finish the actual final boss music, so instead he reused that one from Spark World, which is so disappointing. But it's such a good song, but it's nowhere near as hype there as it is here. That's a shame, oh well. Before that, from something for the sequel, the 2012 version, that was unstoppable for bonus fight. Uh, I've never actually have I. I'm trying to think because I've only ever beaten before the sequel once. TCB mentioned in the chat room how it's incredibly repetitive with the character switching every zone, which I thoroughly agree that very repetitive. I wish we just have the ability to stick as one or the other. But um, that game also has horrible difficulty spikes. It's around Metro Madness where you start wanting to throw the controller through the wall. It by the final bosses, it's horrible. I remember getting stuck on like the Mechasonic boss, which is right at the end, for hours and raging my way on on that stream. I'm glad there's no longer an archive because I, I, I normally get comically angry on stream, but I, I, I'm spoiling the illusion a bit. When I get angry on stream, it's normally comically angry. It's a bit over exaggerated more than I normally do. I guess it's because I'm talking to you, but at the same time I do sort of play it up a bit, because I, I think it's fine. It makes me laugh. It makes you laugh, but I am a bit peeved off at the game. Sonic Before the Sequel, that stream is the only stream I remember getting actively angry at. Like, not just sort of oh, a bit peeved off, but I'm going to pretend that I'm really angry. Like, no. Genuinely, like, hand through the wall angry. Sonic Before the Sequel, um, playing that game for the first time. That game... It's not fair difficulty at all. It's super unfair, super padding difficulty. Zones that should take five minutes take like 20 because you're inching your way through them 
in a desperate attempt because the game scatters rings so far and wide in a purposeful attempt to make the game last longer. There's a difference between... I think Lake's other games get difficulty way better. He's learned how to do that a lot. He learned how to do that properly. Especially Sparkly Electric just a one. That game has really good uh, a really good difficulty curve in the main campaign and the bonus campaigns like the challenge mode, um, Sparks Challenge. There's challenge mode and there's Sparks cha Challenge and then there's the Fark mode. Those all have like perfect level of difficulty. Fark... Fark and especially the uh, the proper challenge mode are meant to be super hard, and they are, but they feel like fair difficulty, unlike this game. That's my opinion. Then from Spark the Electric Jester, that was Sunfire Forest, stage 14, requested by... Oh, by, by the way, sorry. Unstoppable was um, requested by BrickGamer98. Sunfire Forest, stage 14, from Spark the Electric Jester, requested by Electric Boogaloo, and I'm only going to guess that you requested that because it's uh, the British Andy's outro theme on Twitch. <laughs> I'm fairly certain that's why. And no hate to Electric for that, because it's a brilliant track. And when I hear it, I always go, oh, Andy's stream. <laughs> so I can't, can't blame him at all. For that, from Sonic after the sequel, Ma I, that's Mark. I actually don't know what that is. I think that might be Epsilon. But I, I know, I somewhat know my, um, my sort of the Greek alphabet, but not too much. But I think that might... Someone help me out. The one that looks like an E. I'm fairly certain that's Epsilon, but not... Too sure. For Dream Dart Act 1, um, on Radio Sega we used to have it named Mark S, according to my files. So, uh, Mark S makes more sense, but I sort of like it like that. That's Dream Dart Act 1, a remix of Seaside Hill in a really epic orchestral style, and one that we were all saying we were really nostalgic for, even though it only came out six years ago, which, obligatory mention here on the results, we do it once an episode. Jesus, that was six years ago. I was talking about the memory I had of um, the day. I, I don't remember the day before the sequel came out. I remember sort of the release period for before the sequel, but after the sequel, I remember the day that came out, and I remember the day the soundtrack dropped. And first thing I did was put that on my uh, my Gen 4 white iPod, and I immediately started listening to it all at school. And I didn't stop for years later. I think um, eventually that iPod, no, that iPod still works, but I got an MP3 player. Around 2015, it went onto the MP3 player, and would you know it, it's still on my phone to this very day. I'm no, I'm no longer a school student, but it remained on it remained on a device which I had on me at all times, and it was regularly played that soundtrack. But especially Mark E, that's one of my favourite songs on there for good reason. The uh, the final boss theme of sorts, because it's not that game doesn't really have a final boss as a final level. It's the final level theme. Which happens to be about defeating a boss. <laughs> that was requested by TCB, so thank you for that one, TCB. And for that, my own request again: the menu theme after the sequel, "Pomp and Circumstance." Ironically, another one which reminds me of Andy, because that used to be on uh, one of the main sort of tracks used on Sunday Funday, which is how I always remember it nowadays. But I remember that long before Sunday Funday. It's a brilliant track. I do love a bit of pomp and circumstance, and. Well, we've already done a bit of rambling about the games, but this is what this segment is aimed for. I'm going to give you my opinions, whether I'd recommend or recommend you don't play these games, what I think of the music, what you guys think. That's what this segment is all about, where we just talk about any games that are related to the topic of this episode, and we've got a few. So, let's just start with Sonic Before the Sequel, the, uh, the game which kickstarted it all. It's a game that's sort of intended to be a what-if bridge between Sonic 1 and Sonic 2, 
where it teaches the story part tells, and Sonic became friends, and yay, they're, they're friends. I, I, I don't want to play this game. I've sort of explained my issues with it. Brutally hard. Switching to characters becomes a bit of a chore, but I remember, especially, especially sort of around 2014, I remember falling in love with this one, but I just could never finish it. And then when I did finish it, I remembered why I probably didn't finish it, because, oh, it's brutally hard. It's so brutally hard. Not in a good way either. As I said, uh, BS difficulty. Definitely so. But, uh, would I recommend it? I still think I would recommend it. At the very least, go and download the music. The soundtrack is available on um, the game's Google site, which I don't remember the URL for, but just search Sonic for the sequel Google site and it will come up. Actually, is that one still up? Because I remember I remember seeing like rumours that that site was actually offline a while ago. So Sonic 4 sequel Google site. I know I know the other one's still up, but I don't have any hope. No, that is still up. Okay, I sort of yeah saw some mentions that perhaps the site had actually gone down. Uh, interesting is that Lake was editing this all the way up until 2017. Because I just looked at the site's edit log, and it says that he was editing it all the way back in 2017. Which, considering the game came out in... That's part of the question, therefore I'm not going to tell you, but... Um, came out a while ago, and he's still updating the game's site. But you can grab it there, and on the site, hopefully, is... No, it's not there anymore. Yes, it is, just the text is in black for some... So for reference, if you're not looking at the site, if you haven't typed in the name of it, I don't recommend you do so. Not because it's a bad site, but just because I can explain it to you rather than you having to click on the site. It's one of those sort of, like, 2000s era web pages, which almost like the Radio Sega web page, but um, it has a black background with all the text sort of in the middle of the screen because it's designed for a 4-3 monitor. The problem is, is that because it's on the black background, the text also happens to be black, so I can't actually see the text. But uh, the official soundtrack is on here, it links to Mediafire, and if I click on it, I can still download the soundtrack from Mediafire, would you look at that. Go ahead and download it, and perhaps download the game while you're there. It's it's okay. It's, it's pretty good actually, pretty good is as far as I'd go, not the world's greatest, not the world's worst. Whereas I would completely argue the opposite for Sonic after the sequel, a game which I'm so thoroughly in love with, we've already discussed it in depth. Sonic after the sequel, please go and play it. I've discussed enough of this game now. Moving on. Um, Sonic after the sequel DX, not as much in love of it. Moving on. Oh, by, by the way, I, I prefer the soundtrack to Sonic after the sequel as well. So go and download that. It has so many bops on it. The original's good, but. The new sound team, because there's about three or four new people who joined for after the sequel. Their tracks add so much depth to the game, it's unreal, and I find myself humming the tracks from the sequel to the game before the sequel a lot more than I find myself humming the track for the original. Sonic before the sequel aftermath, I'm going to be a bit biased on this one, because if you caught my adventures on Twitch, you know that I flipping love this game. Um, it's hard to explain this game without explaining the game which people more recognise it for first, but too late, I've already started this, so... Sonic Before the Sequel Aftermath is a demo for a game we're going to be talking about in a second, technically called Sonic Chrono Adventure, which... Um, so it's a, it's a, once again, what if, except this time, what if Sonic combined with Metroidvania, and it's about half an hour long, casually, although 
I'm a, I, my uh, my speedrun bug here caught the best of me, and I regularly speedrun something for the sequel aftermath. And I've got the time down to nine minutes thanks to glitches and thanks to just good gameplay, knowing where I'm going, which you won't do when you first play the game. But it's a really interesting concept of a game, and I think people who are a bit turned off by Chrono Adventure would love this one. It's nice, short, and sweet. And just a, hey, that was a cool concept. Nothing more than a, hey, that was a good game. It's just, hey, that was a nice little concept there. I'd recommend you check that one out. It won't take too much time off your hands, and it doesn't have an original soundtrack, so it uses, it reuses all, all the tracks in it except for one are reused from before the sequel, and then one of them is reused from uh, Sonic Unleashed, actually. But it's, it's a brilliant game. I love it. It's, Calling it my favourite game of the series is a bit of an overstatement, because it's not technically a game, but it's the one I've invested the most time into, despite it being so incredibly short, but it's a fun one. Really would recommend Sonic after this, before the sequel Aftermath as a nice concept of a game. Sonic Chrono Adventure is one that's very divisive, and generally people will say it's good, but there's just something about it that irks them the wrong way or just turn them off of it. Such as TCB in the chat room who just said constant back and forth is just a bit... Degrading, which I hear that one a lot, but once again, caught the speedrunning bug for Sonic Chrono Adventure, so um, doesn't bother me as much. But I, I really like this one. I've only ever beaten it like casually once, and every other time after that, I've sort of um, played the game speedy, skipping stuff because there's so many glitches that just <laughs> break the game. There's a glitch in it that uh, skips like a 30 minute long detour in the game where you transform into a deviant art character and run up walls and stuff. You completely skip that. You can just jump over the trigger <laughs> and get to the end of the game and now we figured out a way to skip the game's final boss <coughs> is because of spoilers. But there's just so much stuff about that game that's broken but you won't recognize that if you play it normally. It's very very fetch questy which um it's fetch questy I think in a good way but in a way which requires you to every time you have to go and fetch something, you'll still go on a new path that you won't have gone on before. So you'll encounter new levels every time the game requests you to fetch something, but it's still very obvious what you're doing. Oh, I need to go and get the speed shoes now. Fine, I'll, tra I'll trek all the other way to the other side of the map and then trek all the way back just to use them in this one specific area. Then wouldn't you know it, I'm stuck again. Got to go and find the next power up on the other side of the other side of the map. And yeah, it's very obviously fetch questy, which is a bit of a downside to it, but don't play it all in one go, play it in chunks. Say, I'm going to play an hour of Chrono Adventure today, and then two days later say, I'm going to play about 30 minutes Chrono Adventure. You'll enjoy it a lot more that way, that's the way I originally played it back when it first came out, and that's the way you're going to enjoy it the most, I think. Otherwise, if you're sadistic like me and run the game, you can beat it in under two hours, because... Hey, that's the, that's the power of knowing your way around the map, because you can just alleviate all the BS, and you can alleviate everything with glitches as well, but hey. So the Chrono Adventure doesn't have an original soundtrack either, all reused from other games. Not as much reused from other fan games this time around, there's a lot of stuff from Metal Gear Rising, Ace Combat, Kirby, there's, uh, yeah, the whole bunch of stuff in that regard, which is reused from games, which rather cheekily in this case, but hey, it's it's a fun game, I'd recommend it, go and download it, it won't be to everyone's taste, but I think it's to enough people's taste that I can wholeheartedly recommend you play it. It's also the last of uh, Lake's Sonic fan games, because then he went on to Spark the Electric Jester 1, spoke at length about this, but there were still some parts I haven't spoken about, 
Uh, incredibly fun game. In- very heavily inspired by Treasure, even if I don't think he realised that. I don't know how aware he is of Treasure, but um, certainly it is inspired by the likes of, especially Dynamite Heady. I got huge Dynamite Heady vibes of um, Spark 1. But it's a solid 2D platformer. Art is gorgeous. Sound design is gorgeous. Not just the soundtrack, also stuff like the sound effects. Many positive aspects to Spark 1. Enough for me to recommend you the game, especially now that it's Permanently half price on Steam because it used to be about fifteen pounds, and now it is now that the second game has come out, it's permanently seven. So on that basis, I can recommend you download it. It does have a few performance issues on Windows 10. Bear that in mind that your mileage will vary. I'm gonna say that a lot tonight, and it's gonna come up a lot later on tonight. But mileage will always vary on stuff like this. These games are very dependent on features that are slowly being rolled out of Windows, shall we say? Which is why cutscenes don't work on before the sequel on Windows 10, because they rolled that feature that lets it work out. There's a lot of stuff which is not future-proof in these games at all. Which is why actually the, sor- the source code is um, lying around for these games now. You can go and download the source code, which actually I have done, and I have built my own version of before the sequel aftermath, because why would you need to do that? I didn't even change too many things. Um, I just enabled VSync on the game, which makes the game run 10 million times better on Windows 10. So you can actually go and mess around with the source code, which is how that deluxe version of, not the DX, but the deluxe version of After the Sequel is able to come about, because the source code is now out there, and you can edit it yourself and release the games yourself with edits to them, etc. And I'd recommend you at least take a look at them. There's some cool unused stuff in there, in particular the background. Yeah, the background which you use for... The background which is used in Deluxe's... Uh, DX's final boss, so after the sequel DX's final boss, was actually in the original game source code. So it was an unused background for years, which he then just decided to do something with, and it's incredibly gorgeous. I've used it on... Um, I've used it as background for stuff before, actually, because it's really nice, and then he used it in the game, and I sort of went, oh, <laughs> I liked using this as an exclusive little background that no one ever, ever really recognised. That's my opinion on it. And Spark 2, <laughs> just wait till later on. Uh, let's check chat in the meantime. Uh, we still, we still got, we still got Tatey, uh, Tatey's now changed name to Tatey Lab 12. And uh, there's now talk about TikTok, which, uh, really off the rails tonight, in that regard. Um, there's still some other good talks, like Superbikes has got his, um, Got all this dip switches working for his game, which I would discuss, but that would derail us even further. And we're already so far behind time, we can't really afford to do that. But check the Discord chat room to see what Superbike's up to. Um, so it's all a bit geeky, but in the nicest way possible. It's it's in the way that well, that's really cool. But um, yeah, certainly. Wow. Okay. So how does that work? I, I want to know this live on air. Is that like? Joyed key are you using for that, or are you using like Xpadder or something similar? Is it a keyboard? Or is it acting as a keyboard, or is it is it a gutted keyboard, or is it using software to emulate a keyboard, or is it something completely different? I want to know. I really want to know, and uh, I'll let you answer that one if you're still around. While you do that, I'm going to head on over into the final round of the Trivia Coast. Trivia Coast. 
So here on the Trivia Coast, I've asked you two questions. I asked you the hard question, which is later appearing in a popular PS4 and Switch platformer, which character is a hidden Easter egg in Sonic R for the sequel? The medium question I asked you was, in what year was Lake's first widely known Sonic fan game known as Sonic Before the Sequel? Nope, Sonic Before the Sequel released. So, what year was Sonic Before the Sequel released? Easy question. Spark the Electric Jester is praised for how accurately it emulates the Sonic formula while also doing something completely different with it. These claims are something to be proud of, but they're not entirely factual in a sense. Which of Lake's fans, which of Lake's fan games is Spark built upon? Which of Lake's fan games is Spark built upon? That's your chance to win one point. I think maybe I should have swapped some of these questions around again, but let me know that one on Discord. You've got roughly about five, five, six minutes to let me know your answer. Private message only, please, because otherwise you give away the game for everyone else. And while we do that, yeah, we're into some more music from the before and after the sequel games, because that's the majority of the music I got, got up tonight, and they're so awesome, but... We got some music from Spark 2 specifically coming up after the review, so I didn't feel too much of a need to put it throughout the rest of the show. And we've played quite a lot of Spark 1, so into Sonic music for the rest of the time, I guess. From after the sequel, this is World to Explore, which is the theme of Horizon Heights Act 2. And it's going to be time to get to those oh-so-important answers and find out what points you got in just a sec.
Friday night. This is Topical Resort, only on Radio Sega. Trivia Coast. So I couldn't find my Trivia Coast close jingle for a second and I was rushing so I decided to play the Supersonic Dance Attack one because I thought that's incredibly fitting with how 90s that last song was because that's a track from Sonic 4 the sequel known as Metro Madness Act 1 and well, that definitely gave a lot of us something to dance to although maybe it's a bit too chill to dance to it but everyone always points out with that one that how it's got the Action 52 samples the woo yeah type things but I think that's just a generic sample you can get anywhere because I've heard them in so many songs but I still always think of Action 52 whenever they come up because I sort of like that song as in the, the Action 52 thing somehow. It's weird. Oh well, before that from Sonic After the Sequel, an incredibly chill song and probably my favourite from the entire soundtrack actually. It's a very tall order. That's World to Explore for Horizon Heights Act 2. Horizon Heights in general has really good music but World to Explore... That's the most nostalgic song in that soundtrack. That reminds me of Summer 2013 so much. Because I also didn't tell the story of how I burnt the, so uh, burnt the soundtrack onto a CD. And I remember <laughs> quite clearly, because I had... Uh, 2013 I bought like a cheap uh, CD stereo player type thing. And well, I ended up burning the songs onto a CD and... Especially Disc 1. I remember listening to Disc 1 on constant repeat that summer. World to Explore being the one I always remembered, always when it was sunny outside, bam, World to Explore put on. Even more so, that's not associated with the iPod memories, because I always remember, like, um, a Mark Epsilon on the way to school, got to listen to some Seaside Hill on a Tuesday, cold Tuesday morning. No, in that case, it was like summer, got the stereo out, got World to Explore on, that's what I always associate that one with, and that's probably why it's my favourite, memories, nostalgia. And well, Memories is the name of Horizon Heights Act 3. Haha, <laughs> I am so fun. No, but that is actually the name of uh, Act 3's track, funnily enough. But it's, it's nostalgic and it's just a really nice song. So that's why I went with that one there. Nice chill block before we get into the next block, which is anything but chill. But speaking of getting into, let's just reveal those results right now because the Trivia Coast is officially closed. Thank you to everyone who entered. Thank you to everyone who tried to enter. And uh, no thank you to anyone who didn't end. No, kidding, of course. Um, Brigamer98 says who he was introduced to a lot of classic fan games and hacks by Omega G-Wolf. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to go too much into this story because it sounds super creepy. And it entirely is super creepy, don't get me wrong. But um, I found out through his YouTube page that Omega G-Wolf actually lives in the same like town at the time. It's now Ten, ten, now ten City, but... He lived in the same town as me, and actually, he worked in a shop that I used to go into really regularly. So, I didn't ever sort of like stop and say, "Hi, oh, oh my god, you made a jewel," but I would run into him quite a lot at work. It was really weird, but it was also really cool at the same time because young child who really likes a YouTuber, and hey, you meet him in a natural environment. Not you're not going to a meet and greet with, "Oh my god, you're this YouTuber." Yeah, I am. I'm the greatest person ever. It's just. Hey, here's your, uh, here's your item that you ordered, sir. <laughs> it's really weird. It makes me sound super stalkery, but he revealed the information himself, and I didn't go out of my way to stalk him. Just <laughs> found him one day out about no out about out of nowhere, and met him a few times after. He doesn't work there anymore. hasn't done for years, but I'm not going to reveal where I am nor where he was. It was just really cool, especially at that sort of age, just meeting someone, even if they're not aware that you're meeting them in a sense. I didn't want to sort of intrude his day, he was at work, 
all or every single time. So hey, what can you do? But super cool YouTube is still watching. Is I was going to combine fan games and hacks accidentally, and then I realised that was probably a really bad idea, so I stopped myself saying that sentence midway through. But yeah, I agree with that. But I came onto Discord just to remind myself who'd actually scored points, and I went on another derailing. Thank you, Brit. Thank you again, Brit. And Retro was also another good source of getting hacks, I agree. Um, anyway, the easy question. Uh, only one person got this surprise me, and it was Brit. Sparkly Electric Jester is praised for how accurately it emulates the Sonic formula while also doing something completely different with it. These claims are something to be proud of, but they're not entirely factual in a sense. Which of Lake's fan games is Spark built upon? The answer, very simply, Sonic Chrono Adventure. Congrats to Brit for getting that one. It's very obviously built on, stop on top of Sonic Chrono Adventure because if you mess around with sort of hex editing the game and using Cheat Engine, Spark, you can mess around with Spark's power-up slots, and you can actually load the comma power-ups for Tails. Uh, Tails doesn't really remain, but you can obviously see what is meant to be his Tails with like dummy sprites. You can see Sonic, you can see um, a couple other characters like the Polum, which is the weird Divintarty type thing. You can play as um, all of Sonic's abilities, like the the jumping shoes, the sword, the uh, boost shoes, all of them are there, but most importantly, one of them isn't there, which is Sonic's original character friend, Do Not Steal, known as Jerum. So it is very obvious that Spark himself is actually based on Jerum, who is only playable for like a minute in that game, but Spark is actually based on Jerum. So fun fact, that's why his moveset feels quite similar. Uh, actually it doesn't, but um, his sort of running speed and just his general handling feels actually very similar to Jerome now that I think about it, so that does make a lot of sense. The medium question, in what year was Lake's first widely known fan game, Sonic Before the sequel, released? A lot of you said 2012, the answer actually is 2011. 2012 a lot of people were getting and they simply said, I don't know how this is wrong, it, everywhere I go says 2012. And that's for the simple reason of... The game was first released in 2011 with a reused soundtrack, so it used tracks from like other Sonic games and some Kirby games and some I think Yoshi's Island was in there somewhere. But then the game got re-released in 2012 with a completely original soundtrack and um, various other enhancements. And this is the one that everyone always thinks of when you think of the game, so much so that it is nearly impossible to track down a copy of the original game now. But 2012 was when the Sage version was released, which is the one we all know, the one with the original soundtrack. 2011 is when Sonic Before the Sequel first hit the scene. Congrats to Veritex, to Brit, and to Jamie, I believe, all got those. On to the hard question. Later appearing in a popular PS4 and Switch platformer, which character is a hidden Easter egg in Sonic after the sequel? Um, this one is... <laughs> <laughs> this one is going to get me a lot of haters. <laughs> Except one of them isn't actually Jamie for once, because he got it right. It's Mighty the Armadillo. Mighty the Armadillo. And Brit in, in especially, I think Brit is going to get really angry at this one, because he didn't get the answer right. But he was adamant that it was Lilac, and it actually is Lilac. Lilac is in the game, but I wasn't talking about Lilac. So, um, Sash Lilac, as she is known in Freedom Planet, um, the protagonist of that game, the story goes that Freedom Planet also started out its life, which is not a story, it's true, but it started... Freedom Planet, Freedom Planet started out its life as a Sonic fan game before turning into its own thing and getting released on Steam. 
as such, because both games were planned to come out around the same time, Sash Lilac, in her original design, she looks nothing like she does in the Final Freedom Planet, but Sash Lilac actually sort of um, appears in Sonic After the Sequel. I believe in Parhelion Peaks is the specific stage where she appears, but that's not the one I was thinking of, because Mighty appears in Technology Tree, and I just thought I'd really throw you off <laughs> with the fact that he appears in Technology Tree. Um, so, I, I will say as well, a lot of people are going to say, your question was really misleading. It was misleading. It wasn't incorrect, because Mighty did appear in a PS4 or Switch platformer. He appeared in Sonic Mania Plus. Yes, it did also come out on Xbox, Xbox One and PC, but, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, I just wanted to really throw you off the question, because PS4 on Switch was the platform for Freedom Planet, and quite a lot of you did actually manage to um, get thrown off the scent by that one, which I'm really happy with, so much so that the people who got it right were Jamie, and I think Jamie. I, I think Jamie was the only one who got that right. <laughs> Congratulations, Jamie, because, hey, it, it counts. I, the question was still correct. You can't complain that I, um... <laughs> <laughs> that I misworded it because I worded it entirely correctly, just not in the right way at all. Throwing you off the scent, that's what I also um, like to do on this show. I like to get my sources wrong and I like to throw you off the scent of the correct answers. That's how I play on the Topical Resort. And yeah, Jamie has uh, pointed out that Lilac looks like Sonic, incredibly like Sonic actually. It's really weird in that, um, in that version of Lilac's design, which thankfully they... Um, fixed, improved, and just made it generally much better. Freedom Planet's a pretty cool game, you should check out Freedom Planet as well. KC would have said think outside the box, but unfortunately I'm not KC. It would probably benefit me if I was KC, but I I'm not KC. But you should have thought outside the box, but I didn't want to give you too many hints, because you would have immediately got it if I hadn't. But Jamie got it, congratulations to Jamie, he got 5 points and he is this week's Trivia Coast winner. For the rest of you who didn't get that question right, didn't answer any questions, didn't get anything, well, there's always another week. As always, another topic which perhaps you might know a little bit more about, might be a lot more comfortable with, etc. So, it's always another week here at the resort for another game of the coast. Be sure to join us next week, tune in, etc. And hopefully, it'll be a bit more to your liking and you'll get some points. Because points mean absolutely nothing. But we're going to get into some music now, and then immediately after the music break, we're going to get into the review. So, I won't, be, I personally won't be speaking to you guys for another like. 20, 30 minutes or so, so um, sit back, I'm going to go and sit back and relax for a bit, go and get something to eat, etc. Probably set on my PS4 to play some more, <laughs> play some more Team Sonic Racing because I've got to move it from downstairs to upstairs. I'm uh, going to do a few more bits as well, just like general maintenance behind the scenes of the show because I've still got some tracks which haven't queued up yet, but um, we've got some stuff coming up here. We've got a track which is the first boss theme in the game for Sonic for the sequel, and a track which is the first boss theme, actually I didn't plan this at all. First boss theme for Sonic after the sequel. The after the sequel track we played before and it's so kick-ass, so awesome I had to save it till right now. That in mind, let's kick it off. Let's kick it off with Sonic before the sequel 2012, because 2012, when you know it, when, when you know it, three point losers, it had an original soundtrack released in 2012. This is simply known as Rolling Out and this is the Topical Resort.
I forgot to say as well, after the review we're getting straight into the Toppy Mix, so it'll be even longer before I see you. Enjoy the Toppy Mix after that, guys. Missed an episode and want to catch up? Want to re-educate yourself on the topic of a previous show? Download our podcast from the Radio Sega Media section. Subscribe to us on iTunes or stream the show through Stitcher. It's no secret that Brazilian programmer Lake Feppard got his start in the industry making Sonic fan games. And it's not really all that surprising either, as his first commercial title, Sparkly Electric Jester, features many nuances found within the Sonic series and riffs on some of the conventions set by the series, although many other games could be listed in the pool of likely influences on the 2017 2D platformer. Spark featured two main campaigns, the more traditional of the two being Spark Story, but after completing the game you'd get access to Fark Story, a unique flavour of Spark that contained many similarities but for the most part plays very differently. Whereas Spark has power-ups, Fark has parrying. Spark has a meta for which items are optimal to use in certain situations. Fark has to take into consideration where he can purposely damage himself to gain attack power from a parry. It's this base that was carried over into the creation of Fark the Electric Jester, known now by the much more on-the-nose title of Spark the Electric Jester 2. As you'll see, however, it wasn't as easy as a few new levels and a fresh title screen. I'm Green Viperate, and on behalf of Radio Sega, this is my review of Spark the Electric Jester 2. One day I'll wear another face Lake's previous experience as a programmer can be summarised by his engine of choice, Click Team Fusion. While certainly not child's play, the engine made programming a little easier than opening a notepad and writing in a language incomprehensible to most. After spending multiple games refining the Sonic Worlds engine within Click Team, it came as a surprise to everyone when Lake announced that his new title would be moving over to Unity, and it would be throwing all of his muscle memory out the window as this title would be his first full 3D game. He'd experimented with Unity seemingly a few years earlier when he developed Hedge Physics, another Sonic fan games engine and the engine which Spark 2 is built upon. It was probably about time for another engine change though, as Spark 1 ran into heavy performance issues resulting in a less than positive reception being built around the game, even if it was incredibly undeserved. While having some positives from the outside, the negative is that this could have some rough edges and suffer from first game syndrome. So let's explore the game and see if my concerns ring true. First up, let's explore the game's length. The game isn't too dreadfully long. Lake chose to keep it short, but we'll be deciding whether it's sweet later on. I counted 14 stages, although the game might track them differently, and I won't spoil how many bosses you'll run into on your journey. I called the timer on my first playthrough around the 3 hour mark, although I took a few short breaks and didn't speed through every single level. I expect that the first average playthrough will take the same exact time as mine, and I think most people will be able to cut that down to 2 hours if you choose to skip cutscenes and iron out any gameplay mistakes you made on the first run. Speaking of runs, I think the length of this game will go down a treat with speedrunners, as well as the level design. The ranking system added to this game will also encourage competition long before you choose to take it to the speedrun.com leaderboards. There's a few little issues I'd like to raise in regards to the level design, some for specific levels and others generally. I saw the concern in early demos that the levels felt very empty, and while nowhere near as extreme in the final, I'd have to agree on a very small scale. Although there's plenty to do in the levels regardless of your playstyle, enemies can feel a little scattered out and there's points where you'll be expecting to see some sort of enemy or trap but nothing. Most traps are fairly easy to avoid as well. Although yes, it should be easy with hindsight or just good vision to see these obstacles and avoid them. Sometimes just looking at set pieces clues you up that you're about to meet an unrelated fiery death for example. The only stage that I like to name and shame is stage 12, as it had an anti-gravity gimmick similar to Shadow the Hedgehog specifically, which I got on with there but after some trial and error, but I don't like it here. 
you must run up to the end of the platform and then touch the gravity changer to flip it upside down. Except the issue comes in when you must jump into it to activate it, as it's in midair. Many deaths came from me simply forgetting to jump into it, as my brain's autopilot mode told me that I'd make it without jumping, only to SA2 shadow my way down back to the planet I came from. As a whole though, I do quite like the level design, but I can see the pacing of stages and set pieces being an issue for the more rabid of players. Personally, I feel that Spark 2 is a very do-it-your-own-way type of game. If you're unsure what I mean by this, I've partially summarised my points into some bullet points which I'll now read out. You can choose to play it with more focus on speed or more on combat. This point is entirely dependent on you. It's subjective as to which playstyle you enjoy more and each have their benefits and drawbacks. Playing strictly fast will nab you medals for beating the part-times, whereas playing strictly combat focused will nab you medals for beating score requirements. Your first playthrough will likely be a mixture of both and will therefore circumvent the medal collecting, but each player will find their groove and their preference. The parry system is very lenient. If you choose to, the parrying system allows you to cheese your way through bosses. You don't ever need to get a perfect block and move which charges your special attacks, because as long as you get a semi-block you avoid taking damage and you can whittle away at the enemy's health without using any high power attacks. Of course, if you love your action games, in particular Metal Gear Rising, parrying will feel right at home, as will attacking in general, and you don't need to worry about taking your sweet time on these bosses and playing it safe, as the bosses reward skillful play and you'll find yourself clearing them in no time at all, unlike a filthy casual. Not to say that some enemies or bosses won't give you a run for your money however, especially on the higher difficulties, so watch your back at all times. Who even needs power-ups? On my first playthrough I picked up a few abilities off the bat, but once I lost them I found myself with no real desire to pick them back up again. I beat the rest of the game with Fark's default moveset and although it made my life a bit more difficult, it was still very possible with a bit of determination. My playthrough on the final game granted me with access to the shop feature, which allowed me to trade in various collectibles for goodies, but more importantly in this case, abilities. This saved me having to scowl through the crevices of a level just to find a power-up I'd lose in a matter of seconds, as I could now just open a menu before entering a stage instead. The game does make it pretty easy to get power-ups, but if you don't want them, why bother? If you want them though, go nuts and pick your favourite. How much pain would you like to experience, mortal? Although I didn't get to experience it in my original playthrough as I was playing on the final Patreon build, although it was extremely close to final with only a few changes, the game has a difficulty select. Spark 1 had a very Kirby-like difficulty curve, with the stages progressively getting harder but the bosses giving you a bit of a run for your money, and then the difficulty would be slightly eased off for the next stage or next part. Spark 2 definitely still has this difficulty curb, but this difficulty select thankfully gives the player some time to ease into the game if they're not feeling comfortable with all the mechanics at hand just yet. One thing that slightly spoils this feature though is the fact that it can't be changed mid-playthrough, which somewhat undermines the point of having it there in the first place. But with that in mind, you'll need to know your strengths before heading into a story mode run. I'll stop with the armchair developing though now and head on over into something that can make or break the game for you. The controls. first point of contention with the controls has to be the camera. At points, it can feel a tad fidgety. The camera never feels as unhelpful as the Sonic Adventure titles, but its problem comes from another aspect. The game uses a free camera system controlled by the right stick, and unlike many platformers, it's rare that the camera will control itself or lock. Due to the freedom this game imposes, it doesn't really cause all that much of an issue, and a lock camera would hurt these stages. But there's some sections where the free camera does affect gameplay. At some point the camera impacted the way Fark moved, which led to a couple of cheap deaths. There are some points where you're going to need good multitasking skills, because while a joystick approach is much more controllable in, say, a first-person shooter, focusing on the high speed that this game offers while fighting small movements with the camera system will test your concentration skills. So I'm personally of the opinion that perhaps the speed section should have completely locked the camera to avoid all distractions. 
It was at this point when I decided to try out various control methods to see whether maybe my trusty Xbox One controller just wasn't cutting it. I added the DualShock 4 and Switch Pro controller to the pile, both of which were officially supported through Steam, and for the sake of testing, I threw my GameCube controller as a wildcard, which Steam detects as a generic controller. All of them, as expected, worked perfectly, although I'm not sure how much of that is down to the game and how much is due to Steam itself, but most controllers with X or D input support will work thanks to Steam, and the game plays to their advantage by adjusting dead zones and sensitivity. Or maybe this is a Steam feature again. I'm not sure, but I'll give the point for the game. I also threw in one more control method for the sake of it. Keyboard and mouse. It only made sense after all, considering I'm playing the game on PC. I had little to no hopes for this control scheme, considering Lake himself, during the release of one of the game's demos, mentioned how the game's keyboard and mouse controls weren't up to scratch. I messed about with this method for a couple of levels, and wouldn't you know it, perhaps due to some control overhaul, this feels like the way the game was meant to be played. All of my issues with using a controller suddenly make sense once I put my keyboard and mouse into use. The reason the camera has so much influence over Fark's movement is because you're meant to keep him running forward using the W key, and then control his general direction with the mouse, with A and D being used for a half strafe, half turn. Attack buttons being placed on a mouse feel perfectly natural, and I'd be able to say that if you're picking up this game, ditch the controller and go with this control scheme. But this control method still does introduce a few issues. The main one I noticed is that the game seems to have issues with mouse exclusivity, as with little to no effort, my mouse cursor would pop out the window, and while it would still work in game, it severely hampered my camera movement as I could no longer make sharp turns, and the camera would get stuck because my mouse was against the side of the screen. For reference, I was playing in 720p windowed with two monitors, with the game on the left monitor. In no time at all from starting a stage, my mouse cursor will be pressed up against the right edge of the second screen. This issue is even more strange when factoring in that it wasn't in any of the demos I played, nor the beta builds. And interestingly, it still happens in full screen, and the only way I could get it to go away was by disconnecting the second monitor and playing in full screen. As much as I love using the keyboard and mouse, I'd recommend sticking to a controller until this issue can be fixed. Also in the oversights category, wall jumping is an absolute pain. When you reach a high wall, you have to make a choice. Do you want to keep the camera in a still position and wrestle back and forth with the A and D keys, or do you want to move the camera and have it quickly snap back behind you every time you make a jump? Neither is in the slightest bit comfortable nor easy, and my first encounter with a wall was absolute hell, whereas I had no issues whatsoever with this on a controller. Overall, the game controls pretty well no matter if you're using a controller or keyboard and mouse, but each control scheme has its oversights, some more annoying for some users than others. While I fell in love with the keyboard and mouse, glitches left me unable to use it and I wound up using the Xbox One controller for the rest of my time with the game, which admittedly I still liked, but just not as much, and even then it still had its own flaws. Let's finally take a look at something which I feel will be much less divisive, the story. The writing in this game has that classic lake charm. It's a bit stilted at points and is very on the nose, but this time thankfully lacks a lot of spelling and grammatical errors unlike the first game, although some still slip through the cracks. Also in the thankful category, I'm thankful that the dialogue has been rewritten since the April demo. The original script for the game viewable within the demo contained excessive swearing, most of which felt ham-fisted and tryhard for a game series that feels way more down-to-earth than some of the characters in that build let on. The final script is much more reasonable, but still feels stop-start in the exact same way that Chrono Adventure and Spark 1 did. Although that's part of the charm in my opinion, and in the case of indie games, I'd much rather have the story straight from the mouth of the developer rather than a dime a dozen professional writer. I didn't really want to spoil the plot, but there's some things that need to be discussed here in regards to the bigger picture, but I'll start with the summary. Now's your chance to get out though if you want to experience the game blind. Fark is a robot designed to befriend and backstab the first game's villain, Freyam. 
Spark ends up defeating Fark and Freyum in the first game, and we start this game with Fark being repaired by Dr. Armstrong. The Doc is then kidnapped by a mysterious figure who we learn is connected to Freyum, who happens to be back along with a new gaggle of henchmen. It's your job as Fark to insert the metaphorical dagger into Freyum's back, or rather in this case to literally kill him while enduring the various hijinks and tricks of his other crew members along the way. Oh right, and we should probably save the Doctor I guess. A simple plot brings simple twists and a simple resolution. A number of our friends end up being Freyum's agents all along, and after a quick and predictable battle we kill them and we're on our way, only to run into someone we know is our enemy. Oh also Fark is Freyum's son of sorts, designed to be an exact clone of the original Freyum as the Freyum we know, throughout the rest of the game is actually controlled by the real one, because that's his weakness and he needed a more powerful body? I probably horribly misrepresented that and got most of the aspects of the twist wrong, that's because I'm still unsure as to what this entire ordeal means. Fark starts the game by telling us that he's designed to backstab Freyum, yet he wasn't actually built for that purpose? Why does he believe that that's his only purpose? And how does he have complete free will when he's in exact home of Freyam? A lot of this is chalked up to memory loss, but that still doesn't explain it. It's also revealed at the end of the game that Fark can transform into a much more powerful form, something that comes completely out of nowhere for an admittedly awesome and adrenaline pumping boss fight, something that late games are always pretty good at. The story as a concept is good, but so many plot points feel completely tacked on, and as a result it leads to many plot holes or complete ass pools of concepts you think would have much more significance. Although it wouldn't fix the problem of the random transformation, a running plot point could have been that Fark had been feeling, say, twitches or general feelings that indicated to the player that he's destined for greater power, but not fully giving it away. As an individual, I would look at the majority of this plot as objectively poor, although I'm expecting people to correct me and say that it's subjective. While the good characterization and usually funny dialogue do add some positives to this side of the game, it's probably for the best that you ignore the plot and focus on the game's many strengths instead. But we've already covered gameplay, so it's probably for the best that we moved on to the sound. You'd expect sound to be our speciality here at Radio Sega, and you'd be entirely correct. However, we don't really have anything here to critique. At all. Since the Sage 2012 version of Sonic before the sequel, Lake has had a dedicated sound team score each of his games, with two exceptions. This game isn't one of those, as this game is jam-packed with a completely original soundtrack. There is one track reused from Spark 1, that being the vocal special boss theme, although I didn't take any issues with that as it was hidden behind beating three different campaigns, two of which are brutally hard, unless you have the game's soundtrack. FM City in this game happens to be a remix of the FM City theme from the first game, except much more rocking this time around in order to fit with the higher energy start to the game. Unless I'm missing something out, every other track in this game is new and infectiously catchy. You've been hearing them throughout this review and I'll leave some out for spoiler reasons, but I really can't fault the soundtrack at all. The first game's OST saw a release through the game music label known as Materia Collective, who then dished it out onto multiple streaming platforms, Bandcamp and iTunes. As of the writing and editing of this review, no such release for this game has been confirmed by the artists, and Lake had no involvement in the release of previous OSTs so could not clue me up on what was happening this time around. Let's not be around the bush though, this game's music will likely wind up on YouTube before the official release, and that's aided this time around by Unity being a little more open than Click Team, although I won't advocate you ripping the music and uploading it for your own gain, nor will I tell you how to do such things. Sound design isn't just about the music though, it's also about anything that bleeps and bloops, which happens to be a lot of things in this game, but we're talking sound effects. 
A whole bunch of them are reused from Spark 1, and I'll let you decide for yourself how you feel about that, but I'm of the opinion that they were good there, and they're good here. They're what I've come to expect to hear when Spark or Farka are on screen, and I'm sure they'd make it into a potential third game if that were to happen. There probably are a few new sounds scattered in too, but I wouldn't know how to identify them, and if I could, would you really want to listen to me put them in an onomatopoeic list? Not to devalue the rest of the game, but sound is by far the strongest aspect, and it's not all down to just listening to the soundtrack. It's down to how the sound effects and music interact with the action and chaos on screen, something which feels perfected in this game. A save not necessarily the best till last, but something that's worth mentioning until last. Since this is a PC game, it's time for those oh so important specs. I'm running the game on a GeForce 1050Ti with 16GB of RAM and a <coughs> Intel Pentium G870. Moving on, the Steam page recommends you have a GTX 760 with an i3 or a GTX 960 with an i5 with 8 gigs of RAM either way. However, mileage will always vary because nothing is ever consistent on PC. When not recording, I was able to run at 1080p 60fps on high with a few drops, whereas I tended to stick with 720p windowed on medium for recording. On that note, on my PC, this game didn't play ball too well with recording software. The game constantly ran my CPU up to 100% usage, something which no game ever does, and it would do this no matter the setting, rendering most recording software useless off the bat. I could only get the game to record using Shadowplay, an Nvidia feature which doesn't like my PC all that much, and here it did either, as I had to hard reset my PC to stop the recording. And when I checked back the footage, I would notice small bits of lag every once in a frequent while. What I'm saying here is that, once again, your mileage will vary on your PC, but even with my weak CPU I didn't encounter all that many issues with performance. Overall, Spark the Electric Jester 2 is still a good game in my opinion. The hands-off, do-it-your-own-way approach to gameplay is one that will please more than it will divide, as it caters to both your needs and wants, and not the needs and wants of others. While the story leaves a lot to be desired, the dialogue and characters themselves are interesting, and despite the lack of screen time for some, I did find myself attached to some of the characters I met due to their charming personality. It goes without saying that the soundtrack is superb, although with the same team that's been perfecting their style since 2012, that comes as no surprise. Considering that I could only come up with one major flaw, but many positives, that's enough in my book to be able to recommend you Spark the Electric Jester 2, available right now for £15.79 on Steam. Get scratching. The Toppy Mix.
probably been like a solid 30 minutes since I said anything to you. So, hi, hi guys, it's uh, it's the real Creed Viper, not the pre-recorded one, who just had a lovely conversation with you there about Sparkling Electric Jester 2, which, yeah, he had a lot of issues with, but he still quite likes the game and still thinks you should pick it up on Steam, although maybe it's best left to a winter slash summer sale, uh, but I'll leave that one up to you, because Spark 1 went, in, went on sale quite a few times, so I reckon this game will too. But that snazzy music can only mean one thing, and it must mean that it's time for the end of the Top of the Resort right here on Radio Sega. You just heard two tracks from Spark Electric Jester 2. The last one you heard was one that you also heard in the review, but it's such a good song, I had to play it again. That's FM Downtown, the theme of Stage 2. Before that, that was Apocalypse Thruster, the theme of Stage 15, which I had not heard up until just then. Literally just then, because... Um, the, as I said in the review, the original... I actually did say this in the review. The original build that I played didn't have music for like the final fifth of the game. So anything beyond stage 10 either didn't have music or reused like the first stage's theme. So I actually haven't heard that and I only knew that um, the boss music was recycled because, because someone told me that. I am slowly progressing my way back through the game again on Steam because it's such a good game. In It's such a good game despite having a lot of flaws. It's a replayable game that I'd recommend doing that maybe but what I'm trying to say here is I'm going back through it again with all the new features that are available along with the fact that the game is now officially out and eventually I'll be experiencing that music and the rest of the boss and I didn't even see like the post credits scene if there is one I didn't even see a final cut scene the credits etc so I definitely need to speed my way back through that one in order to see all those features right there so I want to give a huge thanks to everyone who's been listening in. We have had a whole host of people, such as BrickGamer98, Superbike2, Jamie64326. We were just joined by Opus Science, as in a Opus Sucks Collective. So thank you for joining us, even if it was rather sort of briefly, but thanks for dropping by. We also had Lad 12 also just known as Tatey earlier on in the show. We've had Ace Croft, also known as Shaddix, but he nowadays goes by Ace Croft. A TCB as well, Veritex. IO1980, um, a few other people, who did we have? I'm missing some people out definitely here. I already said Superbike, I didn't say. People who were lurking as well, such as Electric. Sorry, I had to call out the Lurk, but shout-outs to Electric for uh, always being on the Lurk in this case. And there's a couple more people, probably. If I missed you out, please scream at me, please tell me who you are, because I... Um, probably should name you because I always enjoy your company here on the show. Um, now, I should say, next week's show, I've already warned you in advance, but I will warn you again. It is going to be on a on a different time, so it will be on, on Sunday, once again, at 6pm BST, because I wanted to do it on Saturday, however, Rapid Run is back on Saturdays now. Uh, he's fixed all his problems, and he is ready to get raring again on our Twitch channel, so I was going to nick his Saturday night slot this week. But he's back, so instead we're just going to have to um, go on Sunday. So catch me next Sunday, just before Sega Mixer Drive, just like days of old, for an episode about Sumo Digital, because we already talked about um, we already talked about Sonic games and Sega Superstars and racing games before. I want to talk about Sumo Digital, and yes, that includes the Superstars games again. But um, on top of that, it also includes games such as Outrun 2006, Outrun 2, the various virtual tennis games and probably a few more so if you think that the only thing they have to their name is Sonic Racing games you are wholly thoroughly wrong Assuming Digital have quite a lot of good games to their name maybe we'll play you a few tracks from their non-Sega ventures as well because they've done 
some pretty good games outside of that in the recent years. Not previously, really. They didn't have too many great games, but recently they've been really ramping up the quality of their sort of non-licensed games. So catch me next Sunday for that one. As I say, keep an eye on the social media feeds and on the show blogs because I will be announcing if we are moving to a more permanent time soon. So keep your eyes out for that. And um, I think that's really about all I can say. Thank you everyone who's tuned into the show. There's been a bunch of you. I already mentioned your names, but you've been awesome. So I catch you next week. I've been Green Operate. You've been awesome. Thank you so much for listening. One more track from Spark the Electric Jester 1. It's such a chill track, and it's also the stage where you can find Radio Sega, so we've got a video on our YouTube channel explaining how you can find Radio Sega's billboard in Sparkly Electric Jester, and it appears in stage 2, which is known as Flower Mountain Canyon. Once again, Green Vibrate, you've been awesome. So much for listening. And, as always, stay topical.
Enjoyed the show? Check out the full Radio Sega live schedule at radiose.ga forward slash shows. Radio Sega, playing the best Sega music 24-7.